Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John chapter 5, starting at verse 15, and we'll go to 24. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man, excuse me, the Son, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we set our minds upon your word, that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that you would give us understanding, and Father, that from understanding would, be, would come conviction, and that from conviction would, be, would come the doing of your word. Father, I pray that you would keep us from being those who, who merely hear your word and don't act, but we would be those who hear and do. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Now, we could have read all of chapter 5. And, or at least from where we started to the end of the chapter. And it is dense. It is so dense. It is very difficult. Um, we're entering this, one of these difficult passages that are only, you know, really found in the Gospel of John. It's difficult because Jesus is allowing us, like he did in that first chapter of John, to enter into the eternal relationship that he has with his Father. Right? So we're getting to go beyond the veil in a a sense. And 
Ryle says of the passage, these verses begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. We finite creatures that we are are hardly able to comprehend these mysteries. Right? But nevertheless, they were written here for our instruction so that we would understand something about the eternal relations of the Father and the Son, two of the three persons of the Trinity. Now that's, that's not the only topic that that Jesus hits in his sermon here. There is also Jesus' divine nature, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the witness of John, the witness of Jesus' works, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Word of God. All of these things uh, could be a series of sermons. At our session meeting this week, I, I read this passage and I said to the elders that this passage should just be read in worship because no one is really worthy to, to preach it. I mean, how, how, can I, how am I supposed to explain or amplify the things that Jesus says here? In many circumstances, the clarity and the simplicity of the Word of God is clouded by too many words, right, and too many explanations of that word. Nevertheless, I'm praying that what I preach on these passages would be helpful and uh, lead us to love Jesus with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. So we'll take a little chunk at a time and spend a number of weeks in the remainder of chapter 5. First off, remember Remember what we looked at last week. The Jews were frothing at the mouth because Jesus had healed a man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Right? That was the issue. After he's healed, that man is healed and solemnly warned by Jesus not to sin lest something worse happen to him, which we talked about. That healed man goes out and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Verse 16 shows us the response of the Jews. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The result of Jesus' merciful healing of this man was not humility, it wasn't awe, it wasn't thanksgiving, it wasn't rejoicing at this man's uh, new new uh, abilities. No, the Jews determined that, his, that Jesus' supposed breaking of the law of God, which it was not, had earned for Jesus persecution. The Jews undoubtedly thought they were doing the work of God in persecuting God's Son. They thought they were defending God's honor in opposing this carpenter's child. They thought they were doing the will of God. And into the context of that anger over the Sabbath, Jesus lobs this statement like a bomb. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Working. Very intentional word there. Now, what does Jesus mean to say by the statement? Remember the context of the Sabbath, right? The Jews have determined that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker because 
He, t- he had told the healed man to do what? Pick up his pallet and walk. So Jesus says to them, you don't get it. You don't get it. Don't you know that my father is working all the time, even till now, and I myself am working? In other words, Jesus is telling these angry Jews that there is work his father does all the time at every moment, even on the Sabbath day. And there is work that he does, um, and it is no violation of this day that he made for man. No violation at all. What, What work does the Father in heaven do even on the Sabbath? What work does he do? What work is he always doing? Right? He, is, he is providentially creating, sustaining, and governing the whole universe, all of his creation. In other words, his providence is continually at work in this world. That is his direct work in this world. Right? As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, now listen to this, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's the work that God does every day, every moment, every second. He is providentially guiding everything that comes to pass. Everything that occurs in nature and history is his continual work. He's always at work. He determines and ordains everything in advance. And important to note, this work is the mercy of God. I mean, it's ultimately the mercy of God rather, you know, rather than, than history being random, history is a train that is set to arrive at the city called to the praise of God. Right? It is everything is inevitably progressing to the praise of God. His name. It is that reality, that history, that allows God's children to take heart in the midst of what seems like random chaos and tribulation, right? And the and the vain raging of the nations. God knows. God knew beforehand. God ordained, and God providentially governs all of it. It's all arranged by God for His purpose. For his glory, he works always. Now here's what Calvin says on this. This statement that God is working is not inconsistent with what Moses says, that God put an end to his works, Genesis 2.2. Remember, God rested on the seventh day. For he means that after having completed the formation of the world, God consecrated that day that men might employ it in mediating or meditating on his works. Yet he did not cease to sustain by this power the world which he had made, to govern it by his wisdom, to support it by his goodness, to regulate all things according to his pleasure, both in heaven and on earth. In six days, therefore, the creation of the world was completed, but the administration of it still continued, and God incessantly works in maintaining and preserving the order of it. As Paul informs us, 
that in him we live and move and, be, and are. And David informs us that all things stand so long as the Spirit of God upholds them and that they fail as soon as he withdraws his support. Nor is it only by a general providence that the Lord maintains the world which he has created, but he arranges and regulates every part of it, and more specifically by his protection, he keeps and guards believers. Believers whom he has received under his care and guardianship. This is the Christian understanding of the triune God. There are many deists who would completely disagree with this, that when God rested on the seventh day, he took a vacation, went away, and let everything run on its own power, right? Step back, that classic watchmaker, sort of once he got it going, he let it go. That is not at all what we believe. He worked six days in creating. He rested on the seventh day from his work of creation and continued to work to sustain and govern all of his creation. Now those of you who are want to think that this world proves it is out of control and chaotic are making a theological error. We don't understand what God is doing in allowing this or that situation in this world, but that does not mean that he is not laying it out, or as Calvin put it, arranging it. Now take a deep breath and remember that God is sovereign and rules this world by his active providence. Right? That, is, that is not a statement dismissive of, or meant to be dismissive of the destructive nature of man's sin. Right? But, but it is a statement that God rules and that should give you some humility and some peace. Some humility and some peace. Right? Providence is the continual work of the Father and it's, it is God's mercy demonstrated in every minute of every era and will continue to be until we all are in His presence. So in like manner... Jesus healed the crippled man. That work that he did on that Sabbath day was a work of mercy, just as his father's providential governing of his creation is a work of mercy. If God were to stop governing this world, true confusion would come. Absolute chaos would descend. If God were to stop it, but if, if he were to stop, I mean, it, it just, we don't even, we can't even conceive of what sort of chaos that would mean. Um, the, the molecules would, would spin apart in ways they've never done before. And everything would disintegrate. But if God were to stop, I mean, but he doesn't, he doesn't stop and um, Jesus, having always observed his father's work, always seeing his father doing this work of governing his universe, right, in mercy, does a work of mercy for this crippled man. This is sort of just a, a, a little tiny example of Jesus working in the way that his father works over the course of, of light years.
of space. As it says in verse 19, Jesus does what he sees his fathers doing. Their will is one. They work, and their work is done to demonstrate mercy on man. Not only are the Jews wrong that Jesus is disobeying his father, but he's doing exactly what his father has been doing since the creation of the world. They've got it completely wrong. Right? They've got it all wrong. All of this is what Jesus is saying when he states, my father is working until now and I myself am working. It needs to be said that this statement about God's work and Jesus' work does shape the way we understand our practice on the Sabbath. Right? It does understand our practices, or does inform our practices on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just a day of rest and worship, but is a day when it is perfectly good and acceptable to, to perform works of mercy. Forming works of mercy are no violation of the Lord's day. What are works of mercy? Jumping someone's car battery on the Sabbath day would be a work of mercy, right? Uh, taking a sick person to the hospital where there are all kinds of works, different kind of works that don't break the Lord's day. They're called works of necessity, right? Going on at that hospital. But you getting that person there, work of mercy, right? Bringing a meal to a family that is sick. All works of mercy. They are a part of what the Sabbath day is for, these works of mercy. Now, back to the scene with the Jews. Not only was Jesus saying that he does the works that he sees his father doing, but in saying that he is proclaiming that he, Jesus, has the same right to be doing those works as his father. Right? Do you get this? So not only is he saying he's doing the works, but he's saying, I have the same right to be doing these works as the Father in heaven. We have the same right to be doing this. Um, his Father, which as the Jews rightly uh, picked up, Jesus has the same right to be doing these works as his Father, which the Jews rightly pick up as, um, as a statement about the Father and the Son's equality. They pick it up rightly. They, they perceive what Jesus is saying. They pick it up right. The Father and the Son are one. The Father works, the Son works. The Father has a divine right to do so, and the Son has a divine right to do so. They are so far from being at odds with one another, they're actually one God doing one work. Okay? The Jews, again, pick this up, and verse 18 says, he not only was, was uh, breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They get it, right? In saying this stuff about works, they pick up what he's saying. This guy is, is saying he's God. This guy is saying he's, he's equal with God. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. He was calling God his own Father. More specifically, the Greek could be translated, he was calling God his own Father peculiar father, right, in a special sense. Um, in other words, this was not a statement about all men being children of God, right? He was asserting a peculiar and particular sonship 
These Jews got it. He was proclaiming himself equal to the Father, one with the Father. Augustine of this text says, Behold, the Jews understood what the Arians would not understand. These Jews understood what the Arians rejected, right? The Arians, those early church heretics, asserted that Jesus was merely a created being and therefore not equal to God. The Jews heard what Jesus was saying, understood it, and rejected it. Rejected it. Verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. In other words, there is a complete unity between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son do the same things. Jesus sees the Father's work and does the same works. But not only is there a unity, there is an order that is asserted in these verses. Right? It is the Father who works and the Son doing nothing of himself who sees and does in like manner what he sees the Father doing. Right? The Father is preeminent. The Son is obedient and subordinate. Jesus and the Father work, and the Son does nothing independently from the Father. What Jesus does is not done um, because of some sort of independent will separated from the Father. Yet Jesus does not say, I work and the Father sees me and does in like manner to me. Do you see that? The Father works, the Son says, I work in like manner. Right? So they're unified, they're, un they're in unity on these works, but there is also an order that is asserted in these verses. They are equal and ordered, these persons of the Trinity. All of that to say that one of the lessons we learn in this gospel that we will continually run up against is that the Father and the Son are one God and the Father and the Son are two different persons. Okay? We'll continually be running up against that and what that means. One God and an ordering of persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. They are equal in power and glory, distinct in their covenantal relations to one another. The theologians through the ages have hotly debated these uh, issues. One camp um, wants to emphasize the oneness of God, and one camp wants to emphasize the threeness of God. And there are, there are cliffs on both sides of those things. Right? All heretics in the early church, went off the cliff on one side or the other side of there. But we, we have to hold them together, oneness and threeness. Right? And that means asserting God's unity and God's order, his simplicity and his covenantal society, his ontology and his economy. Those are all things that we bring together. And, and we'll, come, we'll be coming back to this throughout this gospel. This is one of the purposes of the gospel, is to show us the Trinity. Okay, so much for that. We'll, we'll come back to it again. Again, to, to say too much is a temptation. 
Augustine said, there are times when speech is deficient, even when the understanding is proficient. How much more does speech suffer defect when the understanding has nothing perfect? Right? And so that's, that's how we always feel when we get into Trinitarian theology. Now look at verse 20. Following verse 19, which states something of the unity and the order of the Godhead, we, we get a reason for their unity and order. We get the reason for their unity and order. For or because the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. Now we can't get all mechanistic about the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. We have to deal with love when it comes to the three persons of the Trinity. Dear brothers and sisters, love is at the core of the Trinity. Love is. Love of the Father and the Son is an eternal love, and it's an eternally fixed and settled love. Right? An ontological love. God loves himself in the Son. God is love. Right? 1 John 4.16 And God is love because the persons of the Father and the person of the Son have always loved one another. This love of the Father did not begin when the dove alighted on Jesus and the voice came out of heaven announcing that Jesus was his beloved Son. That was an announcement of something that had been eternally historical. Jesus had always been a part of that everlasting love. This is too much for us to fully comprehend, again. But what we must learn from it is that love is not an arbitrary and merely human emotion. It's part of the perfection of God and the, the covenantal relations of the persons of the Godhead before anything else existed. Before any man came along and decided that he would teach God what love really is. There was God loving and being love. Right? That love, though, is a part of this world, though ravaged by the fall, and it is a part of this world because God is love from all eternity. In particular, Jesus speaks of the love of his Father toward him. And the love of the Father leads the Father, notice this, leads the love of the Father leads the Father to show to the Son, to show to Jesus all the things that he's doing, all of his works. Right? He does not want to hide from his Son what he is doing. He wants to share all that he is doing with his Son if the Father and the Son did not love one another, they would be more enthused to work independently from one another. Because they love one another, the thought of not sharing their works with one another is, in, in unity is abhorrent to them. Right? Our marriages, only at their best, are this way. Right? An indication of our love for our spouses is that we delight to share with them what we are doing. That's an indication. We want to, in a sense, live vicariously with the ones we love. What she does, I do. What I do, she does. And it's wonderful. That's only when your relationship is 
cranking. Not always like that. And then you know you have a problem in your love. The moment we live independently from our spouses, for example, is the moment we should realize that love is not at the core of our relationship. If you have a hidden life from your wife or your husband, you lack love. Right? If you have a hidden life from your spouse, you lack love. There is something vying for your affections if that is the case. Some of you may love video games, right? Some of you may love strange flesh. Some of you may love some other person more than you love your spouse. And that will be indicated by uh, any portion of your life that is hidden from your husband or your wife. Right? Easy diagnosis on this one. If you hide something from your, your spouse, it indicates there's something wrong, something deficient, something lacking in your love for your spouse. There never has been and never will be any hidden independent part of the work and life of the Father and the Son. It is perfect love. It is perfect love. They are love and being love they are united in will, right? Husband and wife are to be one flesh. But you're not one flesh if you're living two lives. Jesus had healed a crippled man, right? He did that work. He saw his father doing work, works of mercy, just all the mercy that he had poured out through the ages on all of his people, and Jesus just comes along and heals one little crippled man. Seeing his father having done it, he does it too, right? But the father would show Jesus even greater works than these. Healing a man born blind, stilling the raging storm, raising the dead, um, dying and coming back to life. For you, a work of mercy. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Again, the Father's and the Son's unity are shown in the statement. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are those who give life. Remember, it's the Spirit who gives new birth. They, are each, they each are able to do this work, and they do so in unity with the other two. This life they give is both physical and spiritual life, Life that begins with conception, then life that begins with regeneration. The Father and the Son both do this work. Then another verse, another amazing disclosure. Right? Don't be bored with this. This is your Savior and your God. You can't be bored with this. This is the Word of God on your God, your Savior. Listen. Another disclosure from Jesus, verse 22. Jesus teaches us that the Father has given the work of judgment over to his Son. The work of judgment over to his Son and that he, in some sense, the Father, refrains from the work of judgment because he's given it to his Son. What are we to make of this? Well, first of all, let's get rid of the notion that the Father is the judge and Jesus is the nice guy. 
Okay, get rid of that notion. That is not the Word of God. No, the, the Father has given the work of judgment to Jesus, and Jesus is happily engaged in that work, and will do that work with perfect discernment and, at, and basking in the pleasure of his Father. He will do that work of judgment. Ryle says, he that died for sinners is he that will judge them. Do you get that? The one who had mercy on your soul is the one who will also judge your soul. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, the apostle Paul is, is up among the muckety-mucks in the Areopagus, right? And he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so God's going to judge by having furnished an appointed judge over all mankind. Again, note that it is the Father appointing the Son and the Son obeying the Father and completing the work given him to do by the Father. What will judgment look like? What will that judgment look like? Well, Matthew 25 lays it out for us. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, not in His humility as last time, not mounted on a donkey, not, not uh, born of a woman, right? Not in that sense, but in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on His right, Come. You who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then... He will also say to those that are on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will say, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's quite simple, isn't it? It's quite simple. Those who loved Jesus and served him, those who didn't love Jesus and didn't serve him, the goats and the sheep. The Apostle John puts it this way, speaking of Jesus sitting on a great white throne, judging the earth and every individual person in the earth. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Jesus is sitting on this throne and, 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 and it's so glorious, it's just pushing out every lesser glory distorting them away from him. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and this is the end of the ages, and this is the judgment that every man faces in a preliminary trial even before the great day. Scripture says it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. Every man, after he goes from this life to the next, meets Jesus, every soul meets Jesus on the other side. And Jesus, the great judge, wielding that authority that God has given him, happily pronounces sentence, unfaltering in his sentence, Never making an error and sending somebody to death row that shouldn't be there. Never. Perfectly judging you because he knows your heart. Are you ready to stand before God Almighty? How can you be ready? How can you be ready? The judge of every man is also the man who gives his righteousness to men. Think of that. The judge is the one who gives his righteousness. Isaiah 61 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That's what Jesus does. He gives that righteousness. And how do you get that righteousness? Well, Christ has to dwell in you. 
Not only does he give you those robes, but he comes and he lives with you. Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And how does Christ come to dwell in you? By faith. Simply by faith. Romans 10.10, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So by faith in Jesus Christ, you may now, after you die, stand before that dreadful judge, having been given that judge's own righteousness. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no way for you to figure out how to live forever and avoid facing that judgment. There's no way. Kurtzweil can't figure it out. John Bezos can't figure it out. No one can figure it out. They will die and stand before Jesus. You will die and stand before Jesus. And there is no other way. Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father through, but through me. And so... Verse 23 of our passage makes this something abundantly clear. It is only those who honor the Son that will honor the Father. It's only those who honor the Son that are honoring the Father. Right? It is only those who come to terms with this Jesus Christ who ultimately please the Father. There's no bypassing Jesus to get to God. The Father will not allow anyone to trample on the honor of His Son while clamoring for His attention. Right? The Father will have the Son receive equal glory to Himself. Right? So many people are, are offended and honestly disgusted by Jesus Christ and think that they can maintain that hatred and yet please the Father. They think they can hate Jesus and please the Father. So many people think that the gates of heaven will swing wide for them after they die. Those gates will remain shut for those who do not have Christ's righteousness. His infinite merit must be upon them. Right? How many people do you know who think they are spiritual, that they... They live a life pleasing to God, but who will have nothing to do with Jesus. This Jesus, this crazy Jesus. Right, I expect it's many that you know like that. They want to be spiritual. They want to talk about God, but the minute you bring up Jesus, they clam up and they want to leave the dinner table. Never knowing Christ, they will hear him say through those closed gates of heaven, I never knew you, depart from me. Depart. And it will be utter anguish. Utter anguish. On the other hand, there will be those who hear this verse and respond with faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out 
of death and into life. Out of death. Into life. May that be true of all of you listening to Christ's word being preached today from this pulpit.